Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper with the Public Policy Channel. And today I'm pleased to welcome Suja Thomas, who is co-author with Sandra Spirino of Unequal, How America's Courts Undermine Discrimination Law, which is new this year from Oxford University Press. Uh, Suja, welcome. Thank you very much. So before we turn our attention to this new book, I wonder if you might tell our listeners a little bit about uh, your background and your previous work, and then perhaps a little bit about what it is that led you to this particular project. Sure. I'm a professor at the University of Illinois College of Law, and uh, my previous project uh, in the last year was I wrote a book entitled The Missing American Jury uh, that was published by Cambridge University Press. And in that book, I point out that uh, juries decide few cases, uh, actually less than 4% of criminal cases and less than 1% of civil cases. And uh, on the criminal side, this is mainly due to procedures like plea bargaining that force uh, many criminal defendants into pleas. Uh, And on the civil side, part of the story is related to procedures before trial and after trial where judges question the evidence um, that was presented by by plaintiffs. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, so these two um, sides of the story are, are something that I talk about in the Missing American Jury. Mm-hmm. Um, so and in uh, and, and in Unequal, you you home in explicitly on employment discrimination law, correct? Yeah, that's right. Uh, employers um, actually request dismissals, uh, oftentimes on summary judgment, uh, or this procedure that is before trial, and judges actually dismiss over 70% of discrimination cases in whole or in part when employers make these requests for dismissal. And as you said, um, uh, yeah, we hone in on this and, and what is going on in these cases. So why don't we, um, for, for folks who may not be familiar, there are uh, three principal places, as you identify them, sort of in law where we find uh, uh, language that specifically rate, relates to employment discrimination. Can you just lay out for folks uh, sort of what the law says in maybe each of those three places, and then we can start talking about what happens uh, when those cases get to judges? Yeah, and I actually am not quite totally sure uh, I'm knowing what you're referring to. I know, you know, we have Congress uh, has... Well, I'm actually, uh, I'm thinking Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act. Oh, Okay, yeah. So, so in Title VII, uh, um, Congress has set forth really general language, uh, protecting, uh, employees from discrimination on a number of bases, uh, including, uh, not being discriminated against based on their race, mm-hmm. uh, their sex, their national origin, uh, their religion. And, um, we have age discrimination statutes as well. Uh, that protect um, against discrimination on the basis of age. 
we have uh, a statute that also protects against uh, discrimination on the basis of disability. Uh, and so we have a number of statutes that have been enacted by Congress so that um, we hope that uh, because of those, employers will not discriminate. But where they do, the idea is that plaintiffs can bring suits uh, in, in court uh, and, um, and challenge the actions that the employers have taken. And so now plaintiffs do, in fact, bring suits, right? They do. They do. Uh, and and they need to first go to uh, sometimes a state agency, sometimes the, the federal agency, the EEOC, and file a charge of discrimination. Uh, it's an unusual uh, procedure that occurs in discrimination cases where you actually have to go to an administrative agency first. Um, but ultimately, you can go to court uh, and plaintiffs uh, will file uh, cases in court, sometimes on their own as pro se plaintiffs and sometimes with lawyers. And, you know, the larger argument that, that, that you make in the book and walk us through sort of how this happens is that, uh, as you said earlier, judges dismiss an extraordinarily large percent of these cases before they even get to trial. Um, so can you can you talk a little what what is it in in. Um, how is it that judges are supposed to make decisions in these particular kinds of cases about whether there is merit for moving a case forward to trial or not? Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting because we obviously see in the media a lot of mention of sexual harassment, race discrimination. And, you know, at some point, I think uh, during President Obama's time, people kind of talked about whether or not we still have race discrimination, for example. And I think sometimes people thought there wasn't any sexual harassment or sexual discrimination, but it's very apparent, right, right, right nowadays that that's all the case, that there is, that remains discrimination in our society. And as you mentioned, we have these, these laws, um, that Congress has enacted to protect people against discriminating. Um, but, uh, there is a procedure, uh, that, um, is particularly used by judges where judges can decide that they think, uh, that a reasonable jury could not find for the plaintiff who brings the case. And if they think that, they can dismiss the case. And um, uh, and so this happens, as I said, um, in, in a good number of employment discrimination cases. And the really, uh, I think, astounding uh, thing about this is that the facts of the cases where judges are dismissing cases can be incredibly uh, 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 blatant in terms of the discrimination that occurs. So can you, why don't you offer, you offer lots of examples in the book of, of these kinds of instances. Can you share a few with listeners so they get a, a sense of the kinds of, of decisions that judges are making about cases that they don't think warrant even going as far as trial? Sure. One of the cases that we mentioned in the book is a, a case where there was sexual harassment alleged by uh, someone who worked for the sheriff's department as a deputy sheriff and investigator against a supervisor. And um, she alleged a number of uh, actions by that supervisor, including that the supervisor tried to kiss her at a Christmas party, called her, I'll have to use some language that is uh, not the best language, but called her a frigid bitch when she refused. Um, he showed up at places she was staking out and, and talked about what she looked like, um, showed up at her house drunk, um, told her that uh, her, play, her her son that, that at he loved her, um, said that if she walked into a room, he'd get an erection. Um, 
picked her up at the office uh, over his head, chased her around the office, uh, asked her over the phones whether she was dressed or naked. Anyway, it goes on and on and on. And the, 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 the judge, um, in this case said that the conduct was not that frequent over four years or only 16, 16 specific instances. Most were offensive utterances. They weren't most, most of the time it wasn't that he touched her. Only three times did he touch her or attempt to touch her. And much of it involved horseplay. So the judge and then the appellate court uh, affirmed what the judge uh, said. Um, and, you know, we have uh, case after case um, where you have facts like this, including, you know, the sexual harassment cases, uh, racial harassment cases. We have racial harassment cases where the K- KKK was used, noose was used, the N-word was used, uh, and uh, a judge says... Um, this is uh, not enough to constitute uh, uh, th- where a reasonable jury could find that there is uh, harassment. And I, we're not even saying in these cases that they're a, what the jury should find. Right. We're just saying that the case should go to a jury and a jury should decide. And, and you know, keeping in mind that I am not a lawyer, but my understanding and my understanding from your book is that that judges are meant to presume that that for the purposes of determining whether a case goes to trial, that these facts are in fact true, correct? That's right. Uh, it, it, this procedure of summary judgment that I've actually written quite a bit about, uh, it's supposed to be the case that there are no, um, you're, the, 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 the facts are essentially accepted as true. And if you if you put the law on top of the facts, there is a claim or there is no claim. But what's happened in these factually intensive cases like employment discrimination cases and other civil rights cases is that judges try to say that there's no factual issue. It's just a legal question. And so in the case that I just mentioned, they'll say, oh, well, it's a legal question. I am determining that this is not severe or pervasive enough to constitute harassment, and therefore I'm deciding this legal question and I'm throwing the case out. And it's just not a legal question. It's right. clearly a factual question um, that that people should decide, juries should decide together um, what they think about um, this out al- this these allegations of discrimination and whether or not they think that the person should prevail. So you talk um, throughout the book both about a number of of sort of formal doctrines that judges use in order to to uh, arrive at these these determinations. Of, of dismissal or in later parts of the process in uh, even changing the verdict as it's come back from the jury. Um, can you can you talk? It's, it's, it's presumably there is some kind of legal rationale at work for this behavior of judges. Can you can you walk through a little bit about the kinds of um, let's call them excuses <laughs> that yeah. jurists have used for for uh, either dismissing these cases or, in some instances, overturning verdicts when they do get to jury. Sure. the 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 first example that I gave you, um, what they do is is the United States Supreme Court has said, okay, here we have the statutory language that says you cannot discriminate because of sex, and then the United States Supreme Court said. Okay, we recognize that sexual harassment is a form of discrimination, but we think um, in order to actually win on sexual harassment, you have to show us that this is so severe um, uh, or 
um, pervasive that it actually alters your terms and conditions or conditions of employment and create a hostile or abusive working environment. So in that case, that first case that I mentioned, the court says, yeah, it doesn't meet that standard. We think it doesn't meet that standard. So that's one way that, that this is done. But there's literally about 20 or so ways that courts do this. And another way is they'll say, uh, a discriminatory remark is what's called a stray remark. And, and so there was a case, um, uh, and what that refers to, first of all, is that, that the remark was too remote in time from the decision that is alleged to be discriminatory. So a, a remark was made, let's say, in January that was discriminatory uh, from the supervisor to the employee. But then in June, that's when the supervisor fired the employee and there was no discriminatory mark at that time. And so therefore the supervisor wasn't discriminating. Um, and, and, and a, a, a particular example is there was a, uh, a teacher who, who was starting in a job and the superintendent said to him, um, that he was, he was black and he had been, he was a coach and he said, um, he had had problems in the past with black coaches. And if there was another problem, no matter what it was, he would do his best to get rid of him um, from day one. And he also had said, the superintendent had said in the same conversation, he had bad luck with black men working in the town. So there had been complaints against the particular new teacher slash coach. Uh, and, um, you know, there were some um, complaints, uh, and whether they were legitimate or not, I can't tell you, but, uh, they decided not to, uh, go forward with, uh, recommending him for, to renew his contract. And the position was filled by a white female. Uh, and, and so what the court said in this, uh, in its decision was that there was overwhelming evidence supporting uh, the legitimate justification in deciding not to renew the contract. And so the comments could just be viewed as stray remarks that did not have any uh, bearing on whether or not there was um, a discrimination in this case. And so, uh, so the case was dismissed. And even though there was explicit evidence of discrimination um, by the super superintendent, this was ignored, and the court said, we don't find this, essentially, we don't find this persuasive. Uh, so we have case after case after case where there are explicit, uh, evident, there's explicit evidence of discrimination, and the case gets dismissed. Again, I emphasize that we're not saying there was discrimination or there wasn't discrimination. We're saying this case goes to a jury, and the, the jury is the best body to decide, not a single judge. Uh, yeah. So... So I am assuming that a disproportionate number of these judges are white and male, yes? That's true. Uh, there are, you know, different stats at different points in time. Um, the, the latest statistics uh, that I've seen are something like, I think it's something like 60-something percent um, of federal judges are uh, men um, and seventy something percent are are white. Um, um, the the most important point is that the federal judiciary and the state judiciary as well, but we really talk about the federal judiciary in the book. They, it doesn't map what the um, general population is, right. and so while a jury population isn't going to exactly map the general population, it's going to more uh, better uh, uh, represent the general population than the 
than the judiciary. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, because that's that's, you know, one of the ways in which uh, allowing these cases to go to a jury might uh, might create a different outcome, might not, but might. Um, and that simply that that you would have have surely greater diversity. Well, one would hope greater diversity, not surely uh, greater diversity on a jury than you get in when you look at the the federal judiciary. What are what are the other virtues of allowing these cases to go to juries so that we might wind up with uh, better decisions? Yeah, I think um, one of the things that I like to talk about, and it kind of goes back to the first book, is that. You know, the we chose the jury to decide. So in the Constitution, we have the Seventh Amendment, and the Seventh Amendment provides for a civil jury uh, to decide certain cases. And it's civil juries were supposed to decide cases with monetary damages. And so um, we trusted juries to decide these types of disputes. And even if we get into cases involving, let's say, um, an unreasonable search by the government of 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 a person, you know, again, back in the day, you could sue the government and the government would have to give you damages. Right now, um, it's the case that that case could be dismissed uh, and a judge could just say, oh, you know, you don't you don't you don't get a chance to have a jury decide. But it's I think it's important to have the community um come together and decide these important questions. I think it's important, one, for just participation purposes, but also for purposes of actually having a fair result for uh, the person who is bringing their case. So, so you know, to, to hear you tell it, these, these judges are engaging in um, improper and inappropriate behavior. I'm not qualified to judge whether it, whether it rises to the level of illegality, but it, but it seems to me clear that they are violating the intent of a whole host of federal laws. Is that a fair read? And if so, how does that happen and how does it persist? Yeah, it's a really good question. Uh, And I think over time what has happened is that we've become more accepting of a shift of authority away from uh, juries deciding. And I don't mean we as a general population, because the general population doesn't know that this is going on. And one of the goals of uh, my first book and also for the second book is to kind of expose what's happening. So originally, the Supreme Court itself was more protective of the jury. And over time, it has become less protective of the jury. And over time, um, we have seen... um, of course, juries decide um, fewer cases, but I think over time we've also seen uh, a more willingness of judges to say, uh, you know, we think there's only one possible answer here, and as a result, we're going to dismiss this case. The thing that we should keep in mind, though, is judges often, and I, I, I've heard them say this um, over and over again, judges will say that juries are actually very good decision makers. Um, that they trust them, that they, they are very careful, um, they, that, and so, so there's this odd, um, situation where you see judges and you hear judges talking about juries in this way, but at the same time, they take these very factually intensive cases away from juries and use these different doctrines and inferences that to me don't make a lot of sense, um, to, you know, to take these cases away. And so 
So I think that a lot of judges on the on the district court level, that is the lower court mm-hmm. level, uh, in the trial court level, I think that they feel that they have to dismiss these cases. A lot of judges, I think, see the what the appellate courts have said, and they see certain facts from certain cases, and they say, well, if that's not enough um, to show harassment, then my case isn't enough to show harassment. And, um, and so I think that they, a lot of district court judges, trial court judges, believe that they are compelled to dismiss certain cases. Uh, but some places are just, you know, worse than others. And, um, you know, the Atlanta courts, uh, are, are not a, uh, and this may be again the, uh, because of the appellate court, but I, I'm not sure of that. Uh, but the Atlanta courts uh, have even worse statistics uh, than the statistics I mentioned earlier. Um, over 80% of cases are, are dismissed. Uh, I think last month, every case that came out, um, uh, there was summary judgment granted in employment discrimination cases, uh, something that I heard anecdotally. So I think it's a multifaceted uh question and answer to say why we are where we are today. Um, but part of what we're trying to do with this book is to expose something that people really have not paid attention to. Um, and I want to turn in just a moment to to what we do about it. But I, and I guess I'm, I'm, you know, it's, it's, you know, in the context of this conversation, it is, it is impossible not to have uh, recent allegations uh, against Harvey Weinstein and then subsequently lots and lots of other high profile people uh, seems to have opened up a floodgate of sorts of, of uh, not exclusively, but mostly women coming forward and reporting uh, past incidences of, of assault, abuse or, or harassment. Um, and, you know, in many instances, if we are if we are to believe that testimony um, that in many cases is coming from lots and lots of sources, um, this has been longstanding, pervasive, discriminatory behavior that in some companies has been going on literally for decades. Um, I mean, I guess the, the, the question that comes to mind is, is has it been able to persist in part because employers know that the legal system so favors them? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, and I don't know the answer to that. I would be speculating. Mm-hmm. Are you uh, comfortable speculating? Uh, but, but I, do, I, you know, I kind of feel comfortable speculating. I think that um, if you know that if someone brings a claim of sexual harassment and that they're unlikely to um, win that case, um, that in some contexts that you may feel more comfortable allowing it to continue. Uh, But I will say that in a lot of the contexts that have come up recently where people are famous um, or have a lot of power, I think that... uh, in some of those contexts, I think that that is more to do with power and what, uh, and what the companies are willing to do. And, um, and I think that obviously this was going on for a long time with Harvey Weinstein and, and it went on a long time because lots of people allowed it to go on because Harvey Weinstein was a very powerful person. And, um, 
And I think we see this in other contexts without naming names. Um, you know, we see this in many other contexts, uh, different powerful people in our society who have been allowed to get away with this for many, many years before anyone was um, called out about it, or, or at least in any public setting. I'm sure people were called out, but not necessarily publicly. So I think a lot of this has to do with power outside of this issue of whether or not, you know, the case will actually be won at trial. Um, we, we've talked uh, uh, a lot um, about about uh, sexual harassment. I want to sort of turn just just briefly and talk about racial discrimination. Uh, and you make reference a couple of times to, to the work of, of Diva Pager, who's a sociologist. Um, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about about the findings of her research just as a way of of communicating to listeners who may not know uh, the the evidence that we have available of of just how pervasive racial discrimination continues to be in the American workplace. Uh, yeah, and you're referring specifically to the uh, the callback. I am. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I don't have the stats right here before me, so you may be able to actually tell, uh, say something more about this. But the basic um, gist um, is that if uh, if a there was a study that was done that that um, uh, they they generated resumes and and they sent these resumes uh, to different cities uh, and they. Um, uh, had African American names versus white names on these resumes, and um, people had um, criminal records versus not having criminal records. And um, one of the statistics uh, shows that you know you were more likely if you were white um, to receive um, a callback, even if you had a criminal record, than if you were black and you did not have a criminal record. Um, so there's significant um, discrimination that continues in the workplace, um, which is shown by this study. And, and that studies. and that sort of that work has been replicated. I don't know how many different times now by Pager and by a whole host of other scholars as well. Um, and part of why I bring it up is that that I think it's all to the good that that at least at this particular moment, we are paying attention to sexual discrimination and assault and harassment in the workplace. And I think the the, the Me Too campaign on social media has been. I think eye-opening for for lots of men who who uh, perhaps have been unaware of how widespread and common an experience of of sexual harassment in the workplace is for lots and lots of women. I I think that my feeling over the last couple of weeks is is I worry that we we lose sight of uh, the racial discrimination aspect of it as well and how pervasive and troubling that is. So that if we've got you know sort of if we've got uh, judges erecting. Uh, their own kinds of barriers for their own kinds of reasonings for these these cases to come to trial and for there to be some sort of consequence to these actions. I think that we we run the risk of of uh, perpetuating uh, injustice and discrimination across a whole host of dimensions. Um, so, Suja, so what do we do about this? <laughs> how, do, how do how do we start to make progress in the other direction? Sure. One of the things that uh, my co-author and I, Sandra Sprino, um, are doing is, you know, we have formed a committee uh, and we are getting a lot of important players um, to join our committee to discuss how we can make change. And specifically, one of the 
changes that needs to occur as I think, and both of us think there needs to be congressional change. Uh, we need Congress um, to confirm that there should be a broad interpretation of the, of the statute, statutes and that we should, um, specifically, the Congress should specifically dismantle these doctrines and inferences that um, have been created some by the Supreme Court, but mostly by the lower courts. Uh, and um, so that's one of the things uh, that that has to happen. And I think it's actually probably the most uh, important thing that has to happen is is actually having uh, these uh, uh, some statutory language that changes how we view the uh, employment discrimination laws and how the courts are supposed to actually interpret the employment discrimination laws. Uh, I think that uh, other things uh, that we can um, do um, include um, actually having in the courts uh, encouraging litigants to kind of emphasize the really broad language. I kind of mentioned really briefly that there's really broad language in all of these statutes, um, but that language has really been uh, uh, restricted by the courts. Uh, and then I just think that we need to uh, inform the public about the dismissal of, of these types of claims uh, I think that there'll be interest if people hear about this. And uh, um, I've, I've been doing some work on, on that front. I, had a, I, I worked on a project with Ted and, and put together a video, a short video that illustrates the jury problem more generally, but also the employment discrimination aspect of this. Uh, but I, I think it, that all three of these things, congressional change, uh, a change within the courts, um, in the absence of congressional change, um, or at least until congressional change, uh, having the courts actually try to make change, and then also informing the public. I think all of these are important to trying to um, get us to the point where Congress actually wanted us to be, I think, um, from the 1964 Title VII Act. Um, we've been speaking with Suja Thomas, who is co-author with Sandra Spirino of Unequal, How America's Courts Undermine Discrimination Law, which is uh, out this year from Oxford University Press. Um, so, Suja, uh, what, are you, what are you working on or what's the next project? Yeah, I, you know, as, as I've talked about, I, I have a real interest in uh, the jury and I've written about the jury in the past and this, uh, this project itself, the Unequal book, has a jury angle to it as well. And so I'm really interested in increasing the number of, of jury trials. And I've been writing and thinking about plea bargaining, as I mentioned before earlier, um, uh, especially because of this um, idea that many, many people plead guilty because of the differences in sentences that they uh, receive if they plead guilty versus if they uh, go to a jury trial and are convicted. They receive a much more severe sentence uh, if they take the jury trial and are convicted. And um, this results in some even innocent people pleading guilty. And so there are 10% of the people who have been found innocent actually pled guilty. And so I've been writing and thinking about plea bargaining and its problems, and I'm going to continue to, to do that. And then another thing I'm really interested in is about uh, juveniles. And juveniles right now do not have juries decide if they lose uh, their liberty. And um, I think that um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be looking at um, whether, in fact, they should have a constitutional right to have a jury decide. I don't, um, my, my instinct, uh, but I don't have a, a definitive answer, is that 
uh, juveniles should be treated no differently than uh, any other person whose liberty is being taken. And, and I certainly so far don't see anything in the Constitution that convinced me, convinces me otherwise. So I'm interested in that topic as well. Uh, thank you. I'm Stephen Pimper with the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network. We have been speaking with Suja Thomas about her new book, Unequal, America's, How America's Courts Undermine Discrimination Law. Suja, thank you so much for taking time to speak with us today. Thank you 